Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks to the team that could show up today, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, it's, uh, it's an awesome thing that God gives us new beginnings and new years, and such a blessing to have an awesome God. And um, thanks for your patience and willingness to be flexible with having to call off the in-person meeting today. We just had issues with people uh, getting, we had a positive result, we had people waiting on results, and so because of what the rules were at the time, it, it seemed good to the board to take this week and make it an online meeting only. We should be, God willing, meeting next week. The rules around what's considered a close contact have changed, and so we should be able to meet from here on out, God willing. So thanks for that. And uh, getting into our message today, we're in Job chapter 30. Just really been reading through Psalms in, in the mornings, and it's been really neat to just be reminded how majestic and awesome and glorious our God is, that He, it doesn't matter what day it is, He's always good every day. And we have such, uh, so much to be thankful for, so much to look forward to because of how awesome He is. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that in sickness and in health, you are glorious and good, that we can look to you to supply all things and to give wisdom and guidance when needed. And Lord, we always need your guidance. We always need your strength. Without you, we fail. We have no hope aside from you. We thank you for giving us an opportunity to draw near to you now in prayer, to worship you uh, wherever we may be, and that whatever state we are, we can learn to be content because our contentment is not found in the temporal, but in you who are eternal, the eternal God, the glorious King, and we worship you. Pray that you would minister your word to our hearts, Father, that we would be soft and attentive. We would be uh, mindful of what you're saying, and it would impact our lives powerfully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God's given everyone a conscience, and as good and useful as it can be, it can lead to false confidence. That's one thing we'll see today, that a conscience can condemn the innocent. It can justify great wickedness when out of step with the Holy Spirit and the word that God's given. The word conscience, it means with knowledge. And with knowledge, the more we have, the more apt we can be to be puffed up with pride. Uh, I was watching the ashes and... In sports, the umpire is supposed to give an unbiased decision of an expert who knows the rules, who, who calls it like they see it. And during several times during the ashes, there was a call made by the umpire that was referred by the batters or the bowlers, and it was found to be incorrect. So someone who's very sincere, someone who's an expert, someone who knows what's right and wrong, they see it one way, but the evidence showed that they were incorrect and it was overruled. And our sincerity in believing what, that we made the right call or um, giving our expert opinion, it doesn't create reality. We can be wrong. And that's what we're going to see with Job today. He had a clear conscience. He believed he had done the right thing. He had avoided sin. There was all this that he had done right, but he was wrong in trying to justify himself before God, who alone is holy and righteous. Job's faced with God's silence. He's been accused by his friends, and so he justifies himself. And it, it, Job's like daring God to take action. If I've sinned, bring it on. Let me have the full brunt 
of your judgment upon me because I know I am innocent of these charges. And he wasn't bluffing. In poker, it's called a pat hand where you're dealt five cards. And you look at them, you're like, well, I can't improve this hand. So I'm just going to stand pat. It's like he threw his cards on the table. He pushed all in and said, I'm innocent. I know that I've done what's right. And he welcomed that thorough inspection of his heart and his motives. I'm reminded of Joseph's brothers. They invited the Egyptians. They just had lunch with Joseph and were bringing food back home. And they were accosted by this Egyptian inspector who's like, hey, there's a cup missing. We need to look for contraband. And they're like, oh, go ahead. They took their sacks down from their donkeys and they said, check them out. And they were very confident that nothing would be found. You remember what happened though, right? Joseph had planted a cup in Benjamin's bag and he did that to test them. And Job was being tested by God who was going to prove him, who was examining him and was teaching him and us to humbly trust the Lord and look to him. So Job continues in Job 30 verse 24. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. Job's expectations have been shattered. He was expecting to live out his days in the safety and peace and prosperity of his nest. But this trial had just thrown him down to the ground. And he was a broken man without remedy. And this situation that happened to him, it caused him to be defensive when accused. He wasn't yet really humble before God because he's still justifying himself. And he felt like God had been cruel and he took issue with God's silence and this apparent injustice. God heeded the prayers of people who cried out when ruins were being destroyed. And he said, well, am I not more important to God than rocks? Like, haven't I wept? For the poor, haven't I been kind to those who were needy? And yet in my need, where is God? Why isn't he speaking to me? Lawson says in the Enduring Word Commentary, as is our natural tendency, Job misinterprets God's silence as a lack of concern and indifference. Job assumes that God's silence means God's displeasure. Have you ever thought that? That because you weren't hearing from God, that God was displeased with you? A more common issue than God's silence is really man's indifference, our dullness, our self-confidence. That's a much bigger problem than God's silence. God has spoken to us through his word. The author of Hebrews, it says that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And we know that Jesus has prayed the father. He has sent the Holy Spirit to fill us, to teach and to guide us into all truth. He speaks to our hearts daily. Now, remember, Job didn't have the gospel and the assurances that we have in God's word. Job's looking at a situation to get better. And he's waiting for God to reveal himself. But it just, he's met with silence. 
He's in turmoil without rest. He's, he's trying to wait patiently upon the Lord, but his troubles just increased. And he felt alone in the dark. He felt desolate. He talks about jackals. Jackals are nocturnal scavengers. They have those howls and Job fit right in with them. He's weeping in the night. He's crying without relief. Ostriches, they're solitary creatures. They make groaning sounds, these odd noises. And Job's just groaning as he's suffering fever. And he says, my blackened skin is falling off. I mean, he was really having a hard time physically, spiritually, emotionally, grieving the loss of his kids. And he's like, my harp, it only plays one tune. And that's the blues. My, my pipe, it's morning songs. It's, it's wailing over what's lost, what can never be regained. And I think people who face grief and depression and insomnia can really identify with what Job's going through, these feelings he couldn't escape. And like we've said before, like I've said, you don't have to suffer the exact same things that Job did to feel like he felt. And he was feeling just intense pain, confusion, and turmoil. And, and he complained, but his grief remained. Continuing in Job 31 verse 4. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty on high? Is it not the destruction for the not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Job continues to defend himself against the false accusations of his friends. He denies their claims. And explain what he did to avoid sinning, not just with his body, not just in public, but in his mind and in his heart and his motives. Most people were sinning without shame. Others avoided sinning in the public sphere. But Job, he refused to sin with his eyes, to sin in his heart, to sin in his mind with thinking lustful thoughts. He made a covenant. That's a promise. He made a covenant with his eyes that he kept. As a married man and with God presiding as judge who saw him that he would not look upon a young woman with lust. He couldn't help seeing a woman, but he put a guard on his mind about thinking impure thoughts. He saw his wife. He saw his eyes as an allotment given him from God, like God had given him his wife, his ability to see. And he didn't want to misuse that. He didn't want to transgress with wandering eyes, lustful thoughts, and adulterous steps. He would be welcoming destruction and disaster from God. He was wise to set these healthy boundaries for himself, right? Dissatisfaction with God and the wife that God had given him. It could lead to lingering looks and sinful thoughts and actions. We see that with David, right? He's watching Bathsheba bathe. He didn't just go, whoa, I shouldn't be seeing this. He kept looking. Then he started inquiring. And then he ultimately slept with her and conceived sin. Job knew looking could lead him astray. And so he made a promise with his eyes that he would not look upon a young woman. You've seen horses with blinkers fitted that are racing or perhaps pulling a buggy. And they do this to cut down on their peripheral vision, especially when there's another horse next to them. So they're focused on the track straight ahead. They're focused on moving forward rather than turning aside because where the head goes, that's where the body's going to go. So they put these blinkers or blinders on a horse to keep them going straight ahead. 
Job was careful not to focus on female beauty. He knew that God was focused on him. He's like, God's got his eye on me. And so I want to keep my eyes on what is pure and my thoughts on what is good. Jesus revealed this in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Under the law of Moses, which likely had not been given at this time, it, adultery was restricted to physical sexual activity. It was punished by death. Jesus explained, and this would have been shocking to the Jews, that even lustful desire was considered adultery in God's eyes, regardless of a physical union. God made a covenant with his people. Did they keep his covenant? No, they didn't. Job made a covenant with his eyes. Did he ever transgress? I'm sure he did. Just because he made a covenant didn't mean he was without sin. Wise boundaries, they prove powerless to change the hearts and minds of sinners. We must be born again. We have to have a new heart and a renewed mind. Be quick to acknowledge and repent when we sin. To look to Jesus for strength and wisdom. And it isn't the fear of punishment or that we could be judged by God. That's to motivate us to do what is right and avoid what's wrong. It's the delight to look upon God and to be pleasing to him. To show love to God who loves us. Who has given us new life. Who has forgiven us of our sins and our adulteries and fornications and all the things that we do that are impure in our hearts and minds. Praise the Lord. He sees us. He keeps us walking in wisdom. He strengthens us to do his will. Job 31 verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. Job was so confident that his life was lived above reproach. He invited action taken against him if he was guilty. He says, if I've lied, if I've been deceitful, let God weigh me and prove me innocent. A common practice amongst greedy and unscrupulous uh, businessmen was to uh, tweak the scales and weights in their favor to take a little more money and to part with a little less goods to enrich themselves. Job's like, I've never done that. I've only done what's right. And he put himself under a sort of curse. He's like, if I've turned from God or from his ways, if I follow the lust of my heart or my, my eyes, let me sow and another reap. He said, if I've lusted or chased women, let my wife be taken from me and made a slave and a concubine to others. Now, Job loved his wife. He didn't want this to happen, but he was so certain. He was so confident of his innocence. He's like, this is what, what and it should happen. This is the right thing to happen because that would be wickedness if I was an adulterer. If I lurked at my neighbor's door and I was spying on his wife. He's showing how atrocious sin adultery is and how strongly he felt about his innocence. 
It was like saying, I swear and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And if you were on my childhood playground, you would hear that oath many times. And it was not because we wanted a needle stuck in our eye or hope to die, but that we were so confident that what we were saying was true, we would say it with an oath. And that's what Job is doing here. He walked wisely. He realized his embrace of even eyeing women was destructive, not only for himself, but for his family, his future and increase. This lust and adultery and deceit, it was wickedness deserving of judgment. He says, that, that's the right thing to have happen if I was in that sin, but I'm not in that sin. He would have submitted to this circumstance of his wife being a slave even as Eli did when God through Samuel told him he would judge his house for the wickedness that he knew and he did nothing about it. Eli, he's, he's, uh, he, he knew that Samuel had heard from the Lord and the, Lord, the word of the Lord was precious in those days. And the next morning he said, what did the Lord tell? And he, he made an oath and said, you know, tell me what God said or else. So Samuel tells him everything. And when he heard that his house was going to be judged, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, I admire this sort of resignation to God's will, but it would be far better to say before sinning, he is the Lord. Let me do what he says is good and put blinkers on to avoid sin. That would have been better for him to take action, to correct his behavior, to acknowledge his sin, rather than say, well, let God be God. Well, God is going to be God, whether you give him permission or not. We see that different reaction to hearing about the judgment of God by King Josiah. He tore his clothes. The book of the law had been found. Amazing. It had been lost, but it had been found in the house of the Lord and read to the king in 2 Kings 22:13. After he heard it, it said, he tore his clothes and said, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it. He mourned and wept when he heard that he was guilty and when his people were guilty and deserving of judgment. God responded to him. God sent a word to Josiah because his heart was tender, because he wept before the Lord. He tore his clothes. He humbled himself he was heard by God and God said, you will be gathered to your fathers in peace. May our hearts be soft and contrite before the Lord as King Josiah was. Not like Eli, just resigned to God being God. God is good. He is the Lord. Let us do what seems good to him. What is good before him. Job 31, 13. He continues, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they have complained against me. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did, he not, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth, I reared him as a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he has, was not warm with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, 
Then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket for destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. Job's friends saw his wealth and assumed it was indication of his greed that he had oppressed people to become so wealthy. The fact that it had been stripped away from him by God, it was proof in their mind that it, he, it was unjust gain and God was judging him for his sin. One after another, they accused him of taking advantage of the poor and the widow. And Job said, I did, not I did not despise the cause of my male or female servants when they complained to me. And a rich ruler was under no obligation to even give ear in that culture to the complaint of a servant. He took each of their cases seriously because he was well aware God would hold him to account. So Job, the things that he did, the reasons for doing it were because of God. God was his focal point. We see his motives, his reasons for everything he did, his decisions, they were formed by a worldview that honored God. So he listened to the cases of his servants and he took them seriously. Most people compare themselves with others and, and find their good by comparison. It's pretty nice to be able to cherry pick the sample size. Um, but God was Job's guide. He wasn't comparing himself with kings and rulers and how other people did business. He's looking at God and saying, God's looking at me. So I want to take careful. I want God to hear my case. So shouldn't I listen to the case of my servant? He created both of us. And he considered people in the low socioeconomic groups, the outcasts, the poor, the widow, the fatherless. He had been hospitable to them. He had been generous to them all. If he saw someone without clothes, it was the wool of his own sheep he made sure they were warmed with. He was hospitable to them. He didn't see a need and pass by. He said, or pawn it off to someone else. He says, I'm going to take care of that. God's given me wealth. And so I'm going to use my wealth to help others that I see in need. And as long as he could remember, he had treated the poor man like his own father with that sort of kindness and gentleness. He had guided the widow to navigate lonely, difficult seasons where there's no breadwinner in the house anymore and, and he would provide for them. And all people that had dealings with Job were blessed by him and said he was a blessing to them. When he ruled in the gate and he could have been heavy-handed against the orphans, he'd done everything in his power to help them and support them. And he says, if I've raised my hand against an orphan, if I've been heavy-handed in my judgment once, let my arm be ripped off. He's pretty confident, isn't he, this Job? He is sure of his innocence. And, and he tells us why. Verse 23, for destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. When Job went to sit in his seat of judgment, he did so trembling because he knew God was judging him. He knew it. And that was just a heavy thought in his mind. And it governed his choices because everything he did, everything he said was before God, knowing he'd be judged by him. He wasn't sitting down to lord his authority over others, his power and wealth. He knew, I am being judged by the God, a God who is mighty and terrible and awesome in every way. Having a seat of power, it's corrupted many people. Satan was one among them. 
he had an exalted role in the presence of God and said, I will be like the most high. Job wasn't corrupted by power or ability. King Saul, he began his reign over Israel humbly. He was small in his own eyes. It wasn't but a short while before he was lifted up with pride. He disobeyed the word of the Lord through Samuel. And at first, when he was confronted by him, denied that he had sinned, Samuel rebuked Saul for sparing the best of the oxen and sheep and sparing King Agag. And he said, God has rejected you from being king because you have rejected the word of God. And as Samuel turns to go, Saul lays a hand on him and it says his, his robe tore. And Samuel used it as an object lesson, saying, the, God is going to tear your kingdom away from you and give it to someone who's better than you, someone who will be pleasing to God. Now, when Saul heard that, was there repentance? Was there brokenness? Ought not Saul to have torn his own clothes at this revelation from the prophet of God? Shouldn't he have apologized for tearing Samuel's clothes? No. See what this verse tells us about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul shrugged off his sin as no big deal. He was willing to say he's sorry just because uh, Samuel was obviously offended, but he wanted to have honor before my people, my elders. I'll worship your God as a show. I'll go into the public sphere and worship God where there can be accolades and praise for me, honor for me, not for God. Because his heart was lifted up with pride. Saul parades Samuel before the people in his torn garments. When Saul's garments should have been torn. In repentance and brokenness before the Lord. But he wasn't, he wasn't feeling bad about like, you know, let's get him something to cover that tear up, that rent in his garment. He's got him up there worshiping God publicly in torn clothes. He didn't care about him. He only cared about himself. Humility, it's not turning down a promotion. It's when promoted to exalt God by humbling yourself before him and everyone else. That's humility. Wisely using a position of honor to help those who cannot repay, to love the unlovable, to honor God instead of ourselves. Job 31 verse 24. <clears throat> if I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. If I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. Job was a very wealthy man at one point. But he didn't find his identity, his security, or put confidence in his wealth or the fine gold that he had. Wealth, it really appeals to the common desires of people. The freedom to do things, the freedom to go places, to acquire, to possess, to gain more, right? It takes money to earn or gain money sometimes. And money gives us confidence and security that we can pay the bills, that we can have necessities like food. We can even afford luxuries at times and we can have the clothes and the home and the transport and the brands and the schools and the healthcare and 
When we give money to worthy causes, it makes us feel good about ourselves, that we're contributing something, leaving an honorable legacy. If you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 62, verse 10, we can see that we can begin to put trust in riches, and often it's not until we lose them we realize that we were actually trusting those riches to some degree. Psalm 62, verse 10. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. I've heard that knowledge is power. Money also has a power to become a substitute of faith in God. It can ensnare our affections. We can set our heart on it, our affections and desires upon it. And many have set their heart on increasing their net worth, laboring to be rich and powerful when power belongs to God. Our power to gain wealth, our power to, to live, to make plans, to do. It all comes from God. Proverbs 23, 5, it says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I know one bird watcher. I think bird watchers are a fairly rare breed these days. Maybe it's just the circle that I'm in. Um, it's, a, it's a good hobby. I think apps, you can track birds and take pictures of them and compare. And it's cool if that's your thing. I know a lot of many more people whose hobby it is to religiously check their investments. They hope that the market will swing in their favor. Really, we ought to look to God who is, who has power, who has mercy. Job's wealth had been taken from him and he had the benefit of hindsight. He could look back and say with a clear conscience, I wasn't trusting in my wealth at all. I'm not shattered because I'm, I don't have any wealth anymore because my heart wasn't set on it. A lot of us can't say that because we haven't gone through what he had. Verses 26 through 28, it shows us that Job did not put idols before God. He didn't worship the sun or the moon as many did in his day. Countless people from the beginning of time until now, they cobbled together practices and assortment of idols, charms, and deities with the aim of protecting themselves and benefiting themselves. And Moses warned God's people in Deuteronomy 4.19, now, he warned them because there would be the potential that they would fall prey to idolatry, that they would be lifting their eyes to the sun, moon, and stars and be driven to worship them, minds darkened by the worship of the creation over the creator. Again, Job's focus, though, is not on shrines and sacrifices. He bared his heart for a thorough inspection of God. He didn't say, you know, I haven't built an altar to this or that. He says, if I have secretly done this, God knows. He can search me right now. He's not going to find any idolatry in my heart. He knew that idolatry was a sin deserving of death and God's judgment, and he carefully avoided it. The standard of righteousness that Job adhered to was much more strict than his friends could have imagined. Job 31, 29. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself when evil, was, evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. 
If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Again, Job is looking at the heart. He's saying, I wasn't puffed up or rejoicing when my enemy fell, and I didn't secretly curse him either. I didn't boast against them and say, told you so, or mock them. His mouth was filled with blessing, not cursing. Really, as I read this, I'm like, this is like the Old Testament version of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus told, where he's focusing not on just what you're doing, but what you're thinking and your motivations. And this shows the unchanging nature of God and his standard of righteousness. That men from all ages, people have had a relationship with God through faith in him. Job had a relationship with the living God, and you can too. Praise him that we have these examples in his word and such promises. What Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, it was revolutionary to the Jewish hearers where he said, it has been written or has been said, but I say unto you. And it doesn't seem to me like it's a really big shock to Job's system because he was living that out. He was walking in light of that. The massive change was seeing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the same God. Job was a man given to hospitality. His servants and travelers would all agree his family and servants were well fed. If they talked amongst themselves, it wasn't like, you know, when has dad ever invited anyone else over? It's like, who hasn't dad invited over? Who hasn't Job served? You know, when that traveler came from a distant country, spoke a different language, couldn't even communicate with him. He's bringing him in. He's, he's killing the fatted calf. Job's not waiting for others to extend an invitation. He's taking initiative to provide help for strangers. His door is literally open so he can see the person coming down the road and go out to them and bring them in. His door is open so the poor and needy can go and find help in time of need. And he, it's like any time they could come in here and find shelter and warmth and friendship. He didn't hide from his responsibility to help others like Adam did hide from God when he was found sinning and he was trying to cower behind his clothes. Job didn't shut the door or hide from the unwashed beggar who lived on the street. He didn't turn away people who were embroiled with local scandals and, and would draw the ire of their families that he was helping them. He's like, I helped them as unto the Lord. He greeted and welcomed people others shunned. Religious people might've been offended and shocked that he helped them, but he did it to honor God and had this acceptance of other people to help them. And then he bursts forth here. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. He was ready to affix his signature to his sworn affidavit. He's begging for an audience with the Almighty. He was confident would vindicate him would show all these accusations of his enemies who, who were his friends, who were treating him like an enemy, were false. 
He held fast to his integrity. His conscience was clear. Previous to this, he said in Job 19.23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pin and lead forever. Now he's desiring his prosecutor, who he imagines to be God, but really was Satan, to write all the accusations against him so that he could gladly take a defense to justify himself and to uh, just disprove each point one by one because he was innocent of transgression. And he would wear that accusation as a badge of honor for everyone to see. He wasn't going to hide from it. He was happy to lay everything on the table and say, see, I have done what was right. The false accusations of Job's friends had emboldened him to justify himself, to think he could proudly vindicate himself before God and men. Anderson said this, far from being abashed, Job is belligerent to the last, eager to have his case settled, confident of the outcome. A conscience tainted by pride, it blinds the wisest of men. We see that here with Job. Verse 38, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. He finished his defense with a flourish. If I've stolen food, well, may the land cry out against me. If I've shed innocent blood, may the land produce thorns and weeds instead of grain as it did for Adam after his sin. Like if I have sinned, let me die the death. Bring it on. After Job rested his case, Job 32.1, it says this. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They were unwise to accuse Job without knowledge. Yet they were wise to know when they were answered well. When someone has their mind is set and there's no shifting it, they left off their arguing. Arguing. He's like, I've not lifted up my eyes to behold women, to lust after them. I've not looked down upon the poor. I haven't looked to my wealth for confidence. I haven't lifted up my eyes to worship the sun and the moon. I've looked to people to help them. And I've looked for God to vindicate me. Those are all motivated out of fear of God. The problem was Job justified himself rather than God. And a new speaker who we'll hear soon, Elihu, he would explain that over the next five chapters. With how defensive Job had become, I doubt that Elihu's words on their own would have had any impact. But God broke the silence with his divine wisdom and power. And what we're going to hear is going to be of great value to us. So I encourage you to come along for those messages as well. I just want to return to that, that moment where Joseph's brothers are unpacking their grain and saying, you know, inspect this sack, inspect this bag of grain. You won't find anything in here. And then they were shocked when there was that silver cup in Benjamin's sack. See how their, their demeanor changed when that cup was revealed. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 44 starting in verse 13. When they had been found out, I just, I like to put myself in their shoes. So you're confident that you were right, that there was no problem. Bag after bag is opened. 
There's 11 of them. Bag after bag, they come to the last one and there's a cup in there. Who put that there? How did it get there? Benjamin, what did you do? How could you do this? But look at how they changed. Genesis 44, 13. Then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man such as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Joseph had put on this act of being this Egyptian ruler. He was an Egyptian ruler, but he made himself strange to his brothers and he's acting like he has the power of divination. Uh, and he did this as an act to see how his brothers would respond. Would they kick his brother Benjamin to the curb and leave him in Egypt like they left him in a pit and sold him to slave traders years before? Or was there a change in them? They tore their clothes. They returned all of them to Joseph. It says they fell before him. There's no blaming others. There's no justifying themselves. They simply fell on the mercy of this ruler because God had found them out. Friends, this is how we ought to be when God brings our sin to light. We feel that we are innocent of transgression, yet it was our pride in justifying ourselves that was the sin. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord and seek Him instead of looking to vindicate ourselves, to justify our behavior or our words. God looks at our hearts, our motives for why we say what we do, why, what we're looking at and why we're looking at it. How we all need forgiveness and cleansing from God. We are all sinners. Jesus Christ is a savior. Will you look to the Lord today? Job, there's all these things. I didn't look to that. I didn't look to that. I didn't look to that. Well, will you look to the Lord? Will you tear your clothes? But, but this is what we should do instead of just tearing our clothes as it's written in Joel 2, 12 and 13. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. Instead of turning to justify yourselves before others, trying to vindicate yourself, turn to the Lord. Look to him. He is, our, he is the source of our life, and he gives new life. When we rend our hearts in repentance before God, he renews and restores. So praise the Lord that he hears us and he loves us. And uh, if you want to keep reading on your own that passage of Joseph and just the restoration that God brought to that family, God wants to do even more with your relationship with him and with others because he is gracious, loving, and good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your power, for your wisdom. Thank you that Lord, here we are, your servants. What can we say? Lord, I have said too much many times. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. 
you would show us our need to be humble and contrite before you, to rend our hearts and not our garments, to be broken for our sin, not with resignation as Eli, but like Josiah who just said, we got to talk to God now. We've been in sin. Not like Saul who wanted honor or glory before men and was happy to tear Samuel's clothes to get what he wants, but Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would realize that we are sinners who need a savior, that you are the only righteous, holy judge. And Lord, we just commit ourselves to you. Thank you for the covenant you've given us through the blood of Jesus, that his blood has been shed so we could be forgiven, our sins could be atoned for, that we could have new life and acceptance. Praise you, Lord, for the gospel. Praise you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence in our lives and for the plans that you have that include us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.